0: And let's give careful attention to this, because it is the very word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him, behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left, all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the, house of the, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. And that's the reading of God's Word. Let's ask Him to bless it to us now and give us understanding as we consider it together. Father, this is your word, it is living, it is active, it was written for our instruction, so may your spirit be our instructor this evening. We ask this in the name of and for the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now as we come to chapter 12 of Zechariah, we are arriving at the second and final oracle of the prophecy of Zechariah and if you think back uh, chapters one through six were a series of night visions they were all kind of a unit and then chapters seven and eight sort of stood by themselves and then when we came to chapter nine that was the beginning of an oracle that lasted from chapter nine through chapter 11 and so then as we arrive at chapter 12 uh, we are coming to the last section overall section which is three chapters long of Zechariah. And as this oracle begins, you see the Lord God introducing himself, we might say, and he introduces himself in terms of his power. His power as creator, his power as the giver of life. And in verse 1 there, in that introduction, as the chapter begins and as this oracle begins, uh, it lays emphasis on the greatness of of the Lord God Almighty. This one writer stated it, it puts the nations in their place, reminds all the peoples of the earth who God is. And these words, when he speaks of stretching out the heavens and founding the earth and forming the spirit of man with him, within him. They refer not only to God's creative work in terms of a beginning and an initiation of of the creation and of life, but they also speak of God's constant providential sustaining of all of his creation. In other words, the only reason creation continues to exist is because moment by moment God desires that it would, and he upholds it by his great power. And we're taught in this passage that God has both the power and the purpose to deliver his people. He's purposed to do it, and he's able to do it. God has both power and purpose to deliver his people. Our first point will be strengthen the Lord, and then we'll look at future glory, and then finally we'll consider true conviction. So First of all, strength in the Lord. God announces, after introducing himself as the Lord of hosts who stretched out the heavens, he announces the coming of a mighty work. It says that Yahweh, the Lord, is going to destroy all the enemies of his people. If you look back again at verse 9, he says, and on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, when he says he's going to seek to do it, it doesn't imply that there's any question as to whether he can do it. There's nothing contingent about this, and it's not as if there's some doubt about it. When he says, I will seek to do it, we should take that to mean that he's going to carefully engineer his purposes, and he's going to work things out so that what he purposes will indeed come to pass. There's no question about it. And he will use Jerusalem, he will use the clans of Judah to devour their enemies and his. And he's going to strengthen his people for that very purpose. Look with me again at verse 5. Then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. And verse 8, on that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And it goes on. These are amazing statements. And it's saying that the nations, as they come against God's people, are going to be impotent against God and against His people. And he describes that power, the power of God that He's going to wield through His people, in a couple of different ways here. First of all, he says he's going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Look at verse 2 again. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. In other words, God is going to make Jerusalem an agent of his wrath against his enemies. And this this illustration, this metaphor of, of The cup of staggering that's used multiple times in scripture as a uh, as a reference to God's wrath against those who oppose him and I want you to see another example of this very thing so turn with me to Isaiah keep your finger in Zechariah but turn to Isaiah chapter 51 where you see this same metaphor this same illustration used Isaiah 51 and it says in verse 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you have, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Okay, now in this context, it's Jerusalem who has partaken of that bowl, that, that cup of staggering for their sins, and, and they're soon to be uh, overthrown by the Babylonians and carried away into exile. Uh, but in verse 22 of that same chapter it says thus says the lord your lord the lord your god who pleads the cause of his people behold i have taken from your hand the cup of staggering the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more i will put it into the hand of your tormentors so you see the illustration there the cup of wrath the the cup of staggering is is an analogy or it's an illustration for god's wrath and the, 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 the sense of the analogy is that the nations that come against God, the, the nations that attack His people and oppose His uh, covenant people will be incapacitated. And that their, their, their incapacitation will be as, as if through drunkenness. They're staggering because of drink and they can't even control themselves. That's, that's the analogy. That's the illustration being made. But not only will he make them a couple of staggering, says he's going to make them a heavy stone. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Now, there's some who, who think that's kind of an analogy to uh, strength contests that people engaged in in the ancient world and actually in the not not too distant past where to, to prove their strength, to prove themselves, men would, would lift large stones and see who could lift the heaviest stone or who could pick it up the easiest or carry it the furthest. And um, so it may have something to do with that. And I, I thought Matthew Henry's comments on this passage and this this analogy were were very insightful because this is what Jerusalem being a heavy stone is all about Henry wrote those that are for keeping up and advancing the kingdom of sin in the world look upon Jerusalem even the church of God as the great obstacle to their designs and they must have it out of the way but they will find it heavier than they think it is and that's what God is saying Everyone who tries to lift this stone, they're gonna hurt themselves. Efforts to remove God's kingdom, efforts to overthrow it will all backfire, just as they always do. And we're reminded in this text as as we consider the idea of strength in the Lord, that God has power over all his creatures. I think that's part of why Uh, this oracle was introduced in the way that it was when God reminds us just in case you forgot I'm the one who stretched out the heavens he says just in case you forgot I founded the earth and the spirit that's in you I put it there I am Yahweh and if we keep that in mind then we can be certain that God has power over all of His creatures if He made them and if He's the one that sustains them day by day, He has complete control over them. He can disable His enemies. He can destroy them from within. And that's what verse 4 is kind of hinting at. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. You know there are places... In scripture where God's people had to face other peoples in battle and on a few occasions God told his people you're not even gonna have to fight this time I'm gonna take care of these people and you won't even have to lift a finger and he turns whole armies against themselves and defeats his enemies that way God has a million ways he can completely incapacitate his enemies and Verse 4 here refers to panic. I couldn't help thinking of uh, another occasion on which God did that. Exodus 14, which I very recently read in my own devotions. This is where the Israelites are crossing through the Red Sea. They're walking through the Red Sea on dry ground because God had separated the waters and they were standing up like a wall on either side and the Israelites just walked through. And then the Egyptians decide, we're going to chase them and they go into the sea. But then we find in Exodus 14, verse 24, that in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. So not only were they right there in the midst of the Red Sea, God worked panic in them all threw them into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. There were other cases uh, during the uh, campaigns of Joshua to take the land where God struck panic into the hearts of Israel's enemies. Also, Jonathan, son of Saul, He went up against a garrison of the Philistines just with his armor bearer. Two men. And they routed this garrison. Why? Partly because God struck panic into the hearts of the Philistines. He can do that. God can embolden. He can give courage. But he can also take it away. He can sap the courage of people. He can cause terror. And he's still able to do such things. He can and he does strengthen his people furthermore. We saw that in verse 5. The clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. You see, Judah, the, the inhabitants, or the, the, the clans of Judah, they saw the courage, the boldness, the strength of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they said, they're getting that from our God. And they themselves were emboldened because they saw their, their brothers in Jerusalem, standing boldly for God. They were encouraged. They were strengthened. And God still strengthens His people. Even this day. He gives new mercies every morning. He empowers His children. He empowers you daily to do everything that He's called you to do. You, just like God's people in every age, have strength in the Lord. Well, the text also speaks of future glory. There are strong and vivid word pictures in this chapter. Word pictures of future glory for God's people. <clears throat> We've already considered Jerusalem as a heavy stone, Jerusalem as a cup of staggering But this passage, as you saw, speaks of the clans of Judah becoming like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. Or like flaming torch in the midst of sheaves. So, if you just imagine a fireplace with a blazing fire going, or a fire pit out in your backyard, and you take a log and you set it on that fire pit or in the fireplace, and the log is consumed by the fire. Or maybe even a more vivid picture is... The blazing torch among sheaves. Sheaves would be standing grain that had been harvested and then gathered in bundles and set out in the in the field, waiting to be carried away. And they've been plucked up, and they're dry. And they would burn quickly and easily. And God says, "I'm going to make my people like a flaming torch in the midst of sheaves, and all their enemies will be consumed." It's just a description of overwhelming power to easily consume opponents. And when he makes that double reference first to a, to a blazing pot and then to a flaming torch, I couldn't help think that the Israelites who heard those words would interpret them as covenantal references. Because remember when God appeared to Abraham and was making promises to Abraham and it was nighttime and Abraham had offered these animals in sacrifice to Yahweh and he'd cut them in half and lay their pieces over against each other and through the pieces passed a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Do you think when people, when Jews heard the words of the prophecy of Zechariah here, this oracle, maybe they thought of Abraham and maybe they were persuaded and encouraged that God was carrying out his purposes even in their day. And that maybe even God was at work in them and through them. The one who appeared to Abraham. So we can sum this up by saying, "Well, what it all adds up to is God is continuously and unstoppably carrying out His redemptive plans. The future glory includes the fact that The Lord God will protect His people. Verse 8, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God will greatly empower His people and strengthen them and glorify all of His people from the least to the greatest. And so He says, "The, the feeblest among them will be like David. Have you reflected on that statement at all? Think about David, the mighty warrior king. David who slew the giant. David, of whom the people sang. They sang of their king, Saul, and said, Saul has slain his thousands. And then they sang of David. And David has slain his ten thousands. A fearless warrior like David. And God is saying, the very feeblest of my people is going to be like David in that day. Which makes you think, wow. Well, what's the house of David going to be like? The house of David, he says, is going to be like God. What does that mean? Well, obviously, we have to throw out any proposed interpretation of that that is is blasphemous in any way. um, He says they're going to be like God, not equal with God, so there's not any divinity being um, attributed here. So what do we make of it? Well, I think as the, that verse itself goes on, it gives some explanation uh, that the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. The angel of the Lord, especially in the Old Testament, was, was uh, considered to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of God among his people and often is equated with the second person of the Godhead, Christ. And the angel of the Lord led the people through the wilderness <laughs> and it's that leading that's referred to here in verse 8 and so the house of David being made like God might be simply a referral to to leadership among the people headship amongst the people of God and all this talk of future glory and Clans of Judah being like a blazing pot and so on and so forth and the feeblest being strengthened to be like a warrior such as David. Well, it raises the question, I think, probably, um, well, uh, the same question Jesus' disciples asked him at the beginning of chapter 24 of Matthew. When will these things be? When does this all play out? When is this going to happen? Well, we we can grapple with that a little bit. But first, let me read what the commentator writing the Tyndale series uh, said. And keep this in mind anytime you're reading prophets and apocalyptic literature uh, because it says the, the lines between present reality and future hope blur in apocalyptic literature. So let's keep that in mind. But as we reflect on what God says he's going to do for his people here, what he says he's going to do in and through his people. First of all, nothing that even approximates those descriptions occurred in the days of Zechariah, so we need to look past those days, and nothing since that time has happened either. I mean the Jews enjoyed some military victories in the the days of the Maccabees, but Nothing that would uh, approximate what Zechariah is describing here. And so then uh, the Romans take over. And then in 70 AD, for the second time, Jerusalem is absolutely leveled. The temple's destroyed and the nation is destroyed. Another commentator wrote... Uh, it is impossible to demonstrate a detailed historical fulfillment, that is, of what we see here in Zechariah 12. It seems more likely that this gives us a pattern for God's working, which may be seen in more or less detail at various times in history. That might be sort of a commentary cop-out, I'm not sure. But um, one thing we must note is that at present, the Lord God is not advancing His kingdom by means of weapons of war. The scriptures tell us that our weapons aren't carnal, they're spiritual. And so I would just point out that, and I <coughs> I even kind of tried to read the phrase in almost the same way, in the same tone, each time it occurred, but in this one chapter There's a phrase that occurs seven times, and it's the phrase on that day. And it's a phrase that looks forward, it points us to the future. And to quote another commentator, it says the phrase on that day occurs 17 times in three chapters and refers to the day when the Lord will establish his kingdom on earth in glory. Occurring as often as it does, the phrase regularly directs the reader and hearer to the future. So I say it's a forward-looking thing. And I think it's probably forward-looking in the same sense that the faith of Moses was forward-looking. Remember, Pastor Mark preached to us from Hebrews, and he spoke of the faith of Moses. And we heard this morning that Through faith, Moses determined that the reproach of Christ was greater wealth than the riches of Egypt. And we heard a really excellent depiction of the wealth and the opulence of that dynasty into which uh, Moses was adopted and he had access to all the privileges and the benefits and the wealth, the luxuries of it. And he decided that the reproach of Christ was worth more than all of it. For he was looking to the reward. And what was his reward? Moses gave up all the privileges of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter and he spent the rest of of his life on earth dealing with that cantankerous people and he spent the rest of his life wandering around in the wilderness. He didn't get to go into the land. So he gave up all that to get what? To hear God say, you're not going to go in. You can go look at the land. Go up on that mountain, look down, I'll show you the land, but you're not going in. Oh, please, Lord, don't talk to me about this anymore, Moses. So what did he get? See, I think the faith of Moses wasn't about the land. In fact, Scripture tells us it wasn't. Did Moses lose out? Did he forsake the riches of Egypt just simply to die in the wilderness? No, he didn't lose out because it wasn't about the land. It was about something greater. It was about something beyond that, something beyond this life. He was looking for a heavenly country, a better country, a city that has foundations, and that's where the future glory is found. <laughs> but then finally we come to true conviction. The closing section of this chapter focuses on mourning. Mourning as in grief, on sorrow. And it's introduced by the promise of, the, of an outpouring of God's spirit. Look with me once more at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. It goes on. That word in Hebrew for grace is the Hebrew word chen. And it's used to describe what Noah found in the eyes of the Lord when God looked down on the earth and saw that all the intention of all man's thoughts were only evil continually but noah found grace in the eyes of the lord here god says i'm going to pour out that spirit that spirit of grace unmerited favor of god he's going to pour out a spirit of grace and a spirit of please please for mercy other versions use the word supplication and i like that use of that word there Spirit, he says he's going to pour out a spirit of grace and of supplication. Part of the reason I like it is because when we use that word supplication there, it's, uh, it's an encouragement to pray, and I think it motivates us to, to pray privately, to go to prayer meeting, and so on and so forth, and we ask God to pour out on us a spirit of grace and supplication. And so the word there uh, is, in general, a zeal for prayer, but it what's implied in the word is that this... This is a spirit of supplication for favor. A spirit of praying for mercy before God. There are two characteristic works of the Holy Spirit that are enumerated for us by this text. (coughs) Zeal for prayer and conviction of sin. and we see that in verse 10. I'll pour out spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. God's going to pour out this spirit, this wonderful spirit of grace and of supplication or pleas for mercy, and the result is people are going to mourn. They're going to grieve. And there's a very obvious sincerity and authenticity about their grief, and it's demonstrated in several ways. First of all, it's compared to several other kinds of mourning. It's compared to examples of deep mourning, like the mourning for an only child. You know people who've lost children. Do you know anyone who's lost their only child to death? Can you imagine what bitter sorrow that would bring? Parents who only had one child and that child was taken in death. That's the kind of mourning that's in view here. Or the mourning for a firstborn son. Mourning like one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for over a firstborn. Verse 11, on that day, the morning in Jerusalem shall be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. We won't take time to turn there, but basically that's a reference to when Josiah was killed in battle. Josiah was one of the greatest kings of Judah, maybe the most righteous king that the nation of Judah had. And he ushered in and implemented wonderful and powerful reforms in land. He turned the people back to serving the Lord their God. He got rid of idols throughout the land. He was a fine king. But he went out uh, into battle against uh, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, and he was slain. And we're told in Scripture that there was deep and bitter lamentation for him. And the mourning of which Zechariah prophesies going to be mourning like that so we see that it's authentic it's sincere it's deep but it's also proven to be authentic demonstrated to be authentic by this repeated use maybe that puzzled you a little bit the repeated use of the phrases by itself and by themselves and it speaks of family after family mourning by itself and their wives by themselves and all that really is indicating is that people are mourning in isolation from one another why is that important it's important because it illustrates or indicates genuine repentance in other words people aren't just sort of gathered together and some people are mourning and everyone else is just sort of going through the motions or they're they're kind of being caught up in the emotion of the of the moment no this is genuine repentance it's not just people jumping on the bandwagon and the whole community is involved The house of David, meaning the leadership, but also the inhabitants of Judah, as it says in verse 10. It speaks of the house of David and the house of Nathan. David, you know, Nathan was one of David's sons. And he was also the ancestor of Zerubbabel. So the presence of the line of David in Judah in the time of Zechariah was represented by the house of Nathan. And so that's the reference to those two. That represents the political leadership. It represents the royal family. Then you've got the house of Levi and the son of Shimei, or the the house of Shimei. And it's the same thing. Levi, you know, was the priestly clan, the priestly tribe. The high priest came from that tribe, and all those who serve in the tabernacle or in the temple came from that tribe. And then Shimei, (coughs) excuse me, was the grandson of Levi. So they were the religious leadership, the priestly family. And then when it says, in each case, the wives by themselves, you see that on the one hand, the husbands weren't demanding that their wives mourn, and that's why they were mourning. And on the other hand, the husbands weren't being um, deferential to or uh, just sort of sympathizing with the wives. These people are are all mourning because they're all genuinely convicted Now, when we come to verse 10, we have one of the clearest references to the Christ in all the Old Testament. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. So, all the promises of this oracle, the whole thing, they're founded on Christ they're founded on his atoning death and we know that this statement about him whom they have pierced is unquestionably a reference to Christ himself John 19 37 says so if there was ever any doubt in those days if there's any question or lack of clarity we know by the time we get to the New Testament this is a prophecy about Jesus but notice too The way it says, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. So there's this identification of the pierced one with Yahweh, with Jehovah, with God. Foreshadowing the divinity of the suffering one. And I say if verse 10 is about Christ, which it most obviously is, then the whole oracle is about Christ. True saving faith is always accompanied by true conviction over sin. <clears throat> the grace of God at work always produces sorrow over sin. We're going to see that in Pilgrim's Progress on Wednesday evening. Because when you, when you meet Pilgrim, who becomes Christian, he's reading this book, and as he reads it, he weeps because he sees that he's undone, just as the people in this oracle see. God's judgment is coming. And over time, throughout history, there's a multitude that can't be numbered who are going to look by eyes of faith at this pierced one, the one that they pierced, They'll look upon Him and they'll mourn and they will mourn over their sins for which He was pierced and in true conviction they'll turn to Him for salvation. That's you. That's me. That's any of you who have looked upon Christ and been grieved over your sins. Grieved that Christ had to suffer and die for your sins and turned to Him in faith. You, by eyes of faith, have seen him. You've looked upon the one whom you've pierced. Everyone else is going to see him too, though. All the rest of the world, they're going to look upon the Christ whom they pierced when he returns in glory, as it says in Revelation chapter one, verse seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. But see, then it's going to be too late. It's going to be too late for tears of repentance. In that day, the wicked are going to be wailing, but it's because of their own condemnation as they're sent away into eternal judgment. <clears throat> and as I reflected on this passage this week I really couldn't help but think of the Murdaugh trial I don't know how much attention any of you gave to it I didn't give it that much I followed the headlines occasionally but I know that many people assumed they assumed that that trial was going to end with a hung jury that was the foregone conclusion on the part of lots of folks there was even a legal expert who came along late in the trial, just w- within days of the, uh, of, the, of the verdict and predicted a quick acquittal, that the jury was actually going to acquit. And to the shock and surprise of many, perhaps uh, especially of Alex Murdoch himself, Alex Murdoch was convicted on two counts of murder. He's going to be going away for the rest of his life, the rest of his natural days to a prison where South Carolina's worst criminals are held. Did he even see that coming, do you think? Do you think he sat there in that courtroom assuming that he was going to get off? That's the way many people think about the judgment day. They sit there like Alex Murdaugh in the courtroom and they think, this is going to be fine. I'm going to get out of this. I'm basically a good person. I'm going to get leniency. People think they won't be held accountable for their sins, but they will be. And they'll be cast in the day of judgment into a place that's unthinkably worse than the worst prison on earth And there's only one way for a person to be acquitted on the day of judgment and that's by the sheer mercy and grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this oracle has been and will continue to be about strength in the Lord and strength in the Lord only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ This oracle that we've looked at tonight is about future glory and that can only be attained in Christ's kingdom. That's why Christ in His Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, those who are convicted over their sins. They mourn over their sins. They shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Because they have that true sense of conviction. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the land. Or the earth. The word means both. If you're resting in Christ today, these blessings are yours and they can never be taken away from you. Because God has purposed to deliver you and he's able to do it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercy to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the future glory to which we can look forward, and we do. We thank you, O God, that you strengthen us. Please give us strength day by day to walk with you and to run with patience this race, and let it be all to the glory and praise of your Son. Amen.